Would you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 8? We'll be in Acts chapter 8 this morning. And before we get started, I want to highlight a couple of books. Uh, one is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And it's by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. I recommend this. Um, the time and scope of our study today doesn't allow me to be able to explain everything. So I highly recommend this book. And the other one that I'm going to recommend, Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy Zuck, which I believe we carry. Um, we can get both of these copies for you. Um, so because time doesn't permit us to go into all the nuances of studying and understanding Scripture, I recommend these to you. So um, with that said, I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Our Father, we thank you so much that you're here with us, Lord. You tell us, Jesus, that you walk in the midst of your church and you love your bride, Lord. And you've given us your word to understand your heart and to understand how you have formed us and what we've been made for and how we best work. Lord, we want to receive from you this morning. We pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us now, God. We pray that you speak to us through your word. Teach us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, um, <clears throat> start by saying that all of us are interpreters. We all interpret all the time. Whether you interpret your uh, text, um, LOL, um, TTYL, I've, I, the first time I ever saw that, I thought, toodles? Why toodles? My wife told me what TTYL is. Talk to you later. Um, Twitter, hashtag, um, all, all these types of things. We all interpret it all the time. Cards, letters. For instance, I've been married for 10 years now, and um, this year will be 11. So 12 years ago, I got this card. Uh, there's a picture on the screen for you. Um, it's a picture of two shoes together. And um, I got this card before we were married um, to then at the time my girlfriend. And, um, you know, when you get a card, you wonder, well, what, what's, really, what's it really saying? Um, inside the card, you can't see it. I mean, there's almost like two words in there. I mean, I don't know if you can see it from that far, but one is a verse Two of them are verses, which is great, you know? I mean, I want a verse, but I want to hear what you, how you think about me, too. <laughs> and it only says, happy birthday, champion. <laughs> now, I read that for two reasons. One, so you know that I'm a champion, and two, <laughs> no. Well, we were big fans of the movie, Rocky movies at the time, so I, don't, I think that might have been what it was about, but it's hard to understand what it, I can't really remember why it was, she called me champion, because she doesn't call me champion that much anymore. <laughs> not that I'm not, it's just that that's not, we have better names than that now. Um, I interpreted what this meant, and I remember sitting in my, at my desk, because that's where it stood, that's where it was, and thinking, two shoes, that must mean we're a great pair, together forever. Or, and see how the one is touching the other? That means she wants to be close to me. <clears throat> well, the fact of the matter is that we all interpret all the time. We all are trying to understand what certain things mean, whether they're verbal or nonverbal. Cards, email, text, Twitter, whatever you might have. And the guy in our story today is also trying to interpret. Um, let's go ahead and start reading. Verse 26. As for Philip, I'll give you a second to turn there. As for Philip... He was a disciple of Christ, or he, followed, he was a follower of Christ. An angel of the Lord said to him, Go south, down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out, and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia. This man was a eunuch um, of great authority under the 
Kandaki or Candace, queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship and he was now returning, seated in his carriage. He was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. This man is seeking to interpret for a few reasons. And as we find out why he's interpreting, what we're going to realize is that the road to understanding Scripture is often difficult, but the destination, the end result, is worth it. The road to understanding Scripture or interpreting it can be difficult, but the end result or the destination is worth it. And from this story, we learn a few things. One, we learn that the road is difficult. Two, we learn that just like traveling on a road, there are directions for this road to understanding Scripture or interpreting Scripture. And three, just like on a road, there's an ultimate destination that you have to reach. So first, the difficulty. Why is it difficult for him? Well, this man particularly, it says that he is an Ethiopian and this is happening around 33 AD. Now, the time that he's reading from the book of Isaiah would have been about 700 years difference. And his culture, he's Ethiopian. This, uh, the book of Isaiah was written to a Jewish audience. He is a, um, he's a eunuch, which means that he was castrated at an early age, bred to... Uh, serve in the office of the queen. This is in some ways how they would trust the men that worked in the courts of the queen. The problem though is that the Jewish law didn't permit uh, a eunuch to worship in the temple. And he's coming back from the temple. He's on a road coming back from a place of worship where he was probably seen as an outcast because of his heritage, his culture, his ethnicity, and because of who he was. He was a eunuch. He was a rich man. He was a high-ranking official. But he's wanting to understand Scripture. He's literally on a road to understanding Scripture. And what we find out is it's difficult. The reason why it's difficult for him is the same reason why understanding Scripture can be difficult for you and I. And that reason is one word, distance. There's an incredible distance of time that has elapsed between when it was written to the original audience and to this man. What we have to understand is God's word to the original audience was his word to them before it was his words to us. There's a distance of culture Remember, he's, he's not a Jew. He's not of Jewish descent. So he's not likely to understand the nuances that are there. And there's a distance of language. The Bible is written in specific language, human language. And although we've established that this is the book that God wrote, God wrote a book, as one author says, God wrote a human book. He used the efforts of man. It was divine inspiration, as we saw, coupled with human perspiration. It wasn't just principles that God downloaded. He chose to use a story, to use history, to use events in time, real places, real language that has nuances and verbs and nouns and those sorts. So the road to understanding Scripture can be difficult because of distance. Uh, D.A. Carson says, it's important to remember that all of Scripture is culturally bound. For a start, it's given in human language, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and languages are cultural phenomena. Also, the words aren't to be thought of uh, to be as though they, uh, say, generic Greek. Rather, they belong to the Greek of Hellenistic period, a specific period of Greek. It isn't Homer Greek or Attic Greek or modern Greek. Indeed, this Greek changes somewhat from writer to writer. Paul doesn't always use the same words as Matthew. And from genre to genre, um, it changes also. None of this should frighten us, though. It's part of the glory of our great God that he's accommodated himself to human speech, which is necessarily time-bound, and therefore it changes. And all such truth is dressed in cultural forms, 
Careful and godly interpretation does not mean stripping away such forms to find absolute truth underneath, for that's not possible. We can never escape our finiteness. It does mean, however, that we should understand these cultural forms and by God's grace discovering the truth that he's disclosed through these cultural forms of scripture, language, time. The Bible, like Jesus, is a mixture of divinity and humanity. Jesus, as God, comes into, hum- into our human history as God and clothes himself in human form. He's the living word. The written word is not much different. It's the same almost. It's, it, Jesus is the living word, but the written word also is divine and has human form to it. Now, this is encouraging because it, it makes me to understand that God wants to speak to me. But not just to me, to all of humanity. That God, as David says in the Psalms, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and he inclines down, he bends down to listen to what I say. I do this with my daughters. My daughter, she's my, my middle daughter, she's four. She constantly asks the question that children all ask. What is it? Why? And I get tired of it after a while. So I just answer her question with a question. But that it makes it even worse. It sends us on this all day like circular reasoning argument. But she'll ask me, Daddy, why is the color of the sky that color when it was different from the way it was yesterday? And I say, it's because of the way the carbon works, baby. It, no. I don't even know if carbon's in the sky. I don't know. I say, it's because God wanted to make it pretty for you. I condescend to her language because I know that's what she understands. And it's the way that God speaks to humanity as well. He speaks through human language. He doesn't just download principles. Now, that's the difficulty, though. It's beauty, but it's difficulty. It doesn't mean that we're doomed to not understand. It means we have to, at times, work towards understanding what it actually means. We need good interpretation. <laughs> this card, I only know what it really means as I understand what the author meant by it. I need good interpretation. The problem is that in the danger that this man faced is not understanding and skipping to, well, here's what it could possibly mean for me without understanding the nuances of the, of the form of literature and the history that it was written in. And so as one powerful political figure, I won't say his name because I'm not trying to promote any party here, has said at one point, which passages of Scripture should guide our, our public policy? Should we go with Leviticus, which suggests slavery is okay and eating shellfish is an abomination? Or we could go with Deuteronomy, which suggests stoning your child if he strays from the faith. Or we should just go with, stick with the Sermon on the Mount, a passage that's so radical that it's doubtful our own defense department would survive its application. So before we get carried away, let's start reading our Bibles. People have not been reading their Bibles, end quote. We can move on from there. It's not just political leaders that interpret Scripture, rightly or wrongly. Is that right? Religious leaders do this. Seeking selfish gain in an attempt to earn their own wealth and promote their own name, a lot of times religious leaders use Scripture to say, you should, well, to make themselves rich. Unfortunately, this at times has caused people to um, neglect um, medicine for their children out of, under, the, under the idea that, well, I'm not having enough faith in God if I take my child to the doctor because this religious leader says that's how I should do it. Parents do this as well. <laughs> we can easily begin to manipulate and say, well, God says this, and the Bible says this. We do this over all kinds of things. But it's important to understand that when Jesus came into this world, 
he himself was tempted by Satan. And Satan didn't discredit the Bible. He didn't say, that's not the word of God. What did he do? He interpreted the Bible. But he interpreted it wrongly. He said, well, if you're God, the Bible says in Psalm 91, throw yourself from this mountain and the angels of God will bear you up. And Jesus, what did he say? He essentially said, you distort the scriptures. Have you not read? Have you not interpreted rightly that you shall not tempt the Lord your God? Of course Psalm 91 speaks of God's sustaining protection, but not against self, uh, 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 injuring ourself or, or testing God to see if he'll actually do it. And the psalm, because it's written in poetry, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen at all times and in all ways. I mean, bad things happen in this world because it's fallen. And so what we realize is that with so many opposing views, we have to ask the question, who has the right or the authority to determine the meaning of what Scripture says? You've all heard it say, or it said, that's your interpretation of it. Well, then what interpretation is right? That's the difficulty on the road to understanding Scripture. Now, just like any road, there has to be some sort of direction to keep the chaos controlled, to keep order. And the road to interpreting Scripture is no different. Now, I'm notoriously not a great rule keeper or direction follower. Um, this is why I'm so grateful for apps and um, Google Maps. Um, and I tried to be the guy that, you know, guys are supposed to have all the, know where the, all the directions are and never stop for directions at the gas station. That's not me. I'll stop all day long and ask for direction. And when we first moved our offices into Santa Barbara, actually, um, I was driving uh, an early morning. I wanted a cup of coffee. I needed a cup of coffee. And, and sometimes the reason why I'm not so good with directions is because I'm, I have so much on my mind. I'm an analyzer by nature, and I'm constantly thinking through things. It drives people around me nuts. And, and, I'm, and I, I miss the directions. I miss the signs. And... This one morning, I was driving past our offices on Yananali, and, and I wasn't familiar with all the one-way roads that are in Santa Barbara. And so I turned quickly, thinking, oh, I just missed the coffee shop. I turned down a one-way street. And I'm... Now, the reason why there's directions for roads is because you weren't designed to drive down a one-way street head on with a police car. <laughs> I turned down the one-way road, and I mean, what's the chances that a cop is coming towards me? <laughs> and he's just like, really? Turn in here. <laughs> a one-way road? You're going to head on with me? <laughs> and so I pull in, and, and the police officer, he was really gracious at the time, and, and uh, you know, what are you doing here? I live in Carpinteria, and, and we have three stoplights in our town, and I didn't know that there was all these one ways, and so he's very gracious to me, about to let me off, and he says, can I see your ID? Now, here's the second problem. I said, you know, I was going to buy a cup of coffee, and I just realized I don't have my wallet with me. So I didn't have my ID, so I ended up getting a ticket, and I was, he was gracious, gracious enough to give me a fix-it ticket. But the point is, is there's directions that you have to follow. Follow them. <laughs> and in interpreting Scripture, there's directions on the road as well. Now, here's a caveat. I despise... Um, acrostics or, or um, acronyms. But I've used, this is my second time I'm using it in this series though. And the reason why I don't like them is because I think that they're kind of passe and they kind of make the speaker, it looks like it's canned. Um, 
at the risk of looking canned, I'm going to use one today because my main purpose today is to give you tools to interpreting Scripture. And if it doesn't look so hot, that's okay. I'm willing to sacrifice that. So are you with me? Can we use an acronym for this, this afternoon and not hold it against me? If you do, uh, email me at brit at reality.com. <laughs> so the first tool on the road to understanding Scripture starts with an R. We're going to use the acronym ROAD. You're never going to forget this. The R stands for, it's pretty profound. Read it. And this is what this man did on the road. Look at verse 25. I'm sorry, um, verse 28. And he was now returning, seated in his carriage. I mean, this is an important guy. He's basically in a stretch carriage, and he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. He was reading it aloud. He has the scroll on his lap, which at the time would have cost a lot of money to get your hands on a scroll, and would have been pretty long, actually. And he's got it on his lap, and he's trying to interpret it. Where does he start? With reading it. N.T. Wright, in a... um, video that I saw recently of him, he says, the way to understand scripture, the first way to understanding scripture is to read it frequently and thoroughly. Read it as a story. In his book, um, Scripture and the Authority of God, he refers to uh, the Bible being a two-act play, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One doesn't make sense without the other, and the new makes sense, or the, the, uh, the old makes sense in light of the new, and the new you couldn't have without the old. It's a two-act play in five parts. Um, the five parts, um, Scott McKnight refers to them as being creation, Genesis 1 through 3, fall, Genesis 3, God's covenant people, Genesis 4, and, and uh, really the covenant that makes with Noah and Abraham, on through the rest of the entire Old Testament. Redemption, when Christ comes and brings renewal to his people, brings salvation, and restoration. Those are the five parts of this two-act play. How God created you and I, he created man in the garden initially, breathing life into him, gave him a job to do, to tend all of creation, to care for it. But man in rebellion and through temptation falls to a a literal enemy, the devil, Satan, because of a lack of interpreting or bad interpretation Man and woman fall in rebellion against God. It wasn't that they had a lack of information. It was bad interpretation. <clears throat> when Eve said, God, didn't, er, God said, I couldn't eat of it or touch it. She began to see God as even harsher and more cruel than what he really said or who he was. And all through, after the fall, Starting in chapter 3, God begins to uh, proclaim his plan of redemption. That the woman would have a seed and the seed would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would bruise his heel. We talked about that last week. And then throughout the rest of the book, it's God's covenant with his people. That really only makes sense because they continue to fall and mess up. And it's conditional, it seems like. But it only makes sense in light of the redemption that Christ brings through the cross. And that in faith in Christ's perfect righteousness, we can be seen as righteous. And now we live in the church age. The time where God is doing a work of redemption and restoring. And it's going to continue on through uh, the millennium. When Christ returns. That's the five-act story. You have to start by reading it several times to get the flow of what Scripture is saying. You don't start. I've been reading, um, I've been on like a two-year project of reading Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. Two years. And each time I start in a new place, I have to go back to and say, okay, where was I again? 
I have to understand where I was in the story. The Bible is the same way. Where are you in the five-part, two-act play? A lot of time we take it out of its context and say, where's my coffee cup verse though? The easiest place to start is by reading one of the gospels or the biographies of Christ. And a lot of times the reason why people say, I don't understand scripture, I don't have a heart for it, is because we simply don't read it with an understanding of this is the story of God. Now, in order to do that practically, it's important that you have a good translation. There's a few different types of translations. There's a word-for-word translation, which uh, would be NASB, ESV. Um, There's good thought-for-thought translations, which is New Living Translation, New International Version. And then there's uh, paraphrases, which are Philip's translation and the Message Bible. I wouldn't recommend your primary Bible being a a, a paraphrase. But the reason why we like the New Living Translation is because it it captures the essence of what was being said with the culture, the content and the culture together by a a group of uh, a committee of scholars that have sat down and looked at the words and looked at the culture and said, we believe that this is what the author intended to mean. Now, that's how we get the fullest understanding. First, by reading it. Secondly, oh, this is what? Observe. Just like when you're driving down the street, you observe, well, I don't, but you might, you observe all of the good, um, well, all of the rules and directions on the road, good or bad. Drive 65. Okay, that means I go 75. So you, 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 you're, you're reading, you're observing. That's what we do in scripture. And that's what this man does here. Look what it says. Verse 29, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, Notice, by the way, uh, we should read it not only as a story, but also in community. Philip said, God said to Philip by the Spirit, go over and walk along beside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The the passage of scripture that he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearers, he didn't open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, so tell me. Was this prophet talking about himself or someone else? This is great observation right here. The process of observation is known uh, in Bible language as, big word here, exegesis. Um, It's from a Greek word that means to pull out and to understand what the words that are being said mean. Now, if you can learn the word macchiato, you can learn exegesis. (laughs) And it's basically the historical task of attempting to hear what was read to the original recipients. That's what exegesis is. It's asking, what did the author intend to mean to the original audience? All of us exegete. All of us at some point are interpreting. A lot of times you hear people say, well, what Jesus meant was, or what they did back in those days were, that's the attempt or the process of exegeting, of asking the question, what does scripture say? What did the original author intend for this passage to say to his hearers? Now, one error is to overread the text of scripture and to uh, develop preconceived opinions or ideas of perspective, uh, 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 have a, our own presuppositions before we come to it, right? We kind of do that. Our culture has, we're, and we're, we're ingrained in that. We, we bring presuppositions and, and pre-understanding to it. Another danger is to underread. Uh, and well, I would say that um, overreading is what's called eisegesis. It's, it's, it's seeing something in the text that's not really there. 
because this is what I wanted to say. Now, the key to good exegesis or the key to good uh, observation is asking good questions. There's a couple of questions that you need to ask. What was the historical context when the author wrote it? What was happening in that time of history? What was happening for this man that he, he's reading the prophet Isaiah? Why did, he, why did he have the scroll of Isaiah? Well, some historians, and this is where it requires the help, not only of a good translation, but maybe a good Bible dictionary. Some historians in a Bible dictionary that I read said that at the time, because eunuchs were not allowed in the temple, the prophet Isaiah in, in chapter 56 talks of a new day when eunuchs would be brought into the kingdom of God. People that had been cut off before would now be brought back in. And perhaps he's seeking hope through that. Nonetheless, the historical context, we have to ask what was happening in history at that point? Also, that's when we start to ask the, the, the big the big. W's, the five W's and the one H, as K. Arthur puts it. Who is his audience? The author, the main characters. What are the main events? When was it written? Where did it take place? Why was it written? And the how is, how is this to be done? Or how will this happen? How will redemption take place? That's an, one way that we can get to a Christ-centered interpretation. How is this to be fulfilled? The literary content, next. Not just, what does it mean in history? What does it mean in literature? What's the literary content? The content surrounding it. As you read scripture, you have to ask those questions because there's all types of money that doesn't make sense to us or a Sabbath day's journey. What was that? How long did that take? High places in the Old Testament? What were those? So we have to ask, what was the genre that the author was writing in. That makes all the difference. How does the author want to be taken? Because we can't just say, we take it literally, all of scripture, because there's times when the author didn't mean to be taken literally. Scripture's written in narrative form. Books like Matthew and Genesis and Samuel are written in those ways. The Bible's written in poetry. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes at times, Song of Solomon. See, but with the Song of Solomon, for instance, in an effort to overread the text or for eisegesis to happen, interpreters at some point said, well, it's not really about a man and a woman in love with each other. It's about Christ and the church, which I really don't think that's what it's saying. What did the author mean to say to his original audience in the time of history and with this literary device? Whether it's poetry or narrative or discourse like Romans or Hebrews or Jude. And the interesting thing is if you take a book like Deuteronomy, it combines three different types of genres. Deuteronomy 32 is poetry. Most of it, on the other hand, is discourse. And then chapter 34 is narrative. And so if we're not asking the question, what does this mean historically? What does this mean in terms of literature? Then we can come to a faulty understanding, bad interpretation. As a result of not understanding the types of literature, um, as I said before, I grew up in a Mormon household to about sixth grade. Mormons tend to read poetic imagery as being literal. So in Psalm 98 verse 1, when it says, his right hand and his holy arm has worked salvation for him, they believe that God the Father has a literal body. When the Bible's clear, when it says in Numbers 23, 19, that God's not a man. And John 4, 23, the Father and Spirit are, are the Father is Spirit without a physical body. That's why it's important as you look at Scripture or you're reading any particular passage that you see the passage in light of the whole, in light of what the rest of Scripture is saying. For instance, uh, there's a diagram that I'm going to share with you. Um, you see the passage at the center. And then you look at the immediate context outside of that. It kind of begins to progress. To understand further what it means, you look at the rest of the larger section, then the rest of the book, and then the rest of the story, the rest of the two-act play. All together, the Bible's incredibly unified, but has one singular story. How does this particular passage point to the storyline? So just in summary, 
in good observation, you have to do a few things. And if you don't get anything besides understand these few principles, this is what you should understand. Seek the plain, natural, intended meaning of the text. What did the original author, in this case, God through the human author, mean to say? Also, take the writer how they want to be taken. How do they mean to be taken in this text? That's where we interpret it grammatically, according to history and discourse and poetry, whatever type it's written in. And then lastly, never set one passage against another so that they contradict. Don't use the, in other words, interpret the obscure passages of Scripture, which there are those, right? In light of the clear passages. Interpret the obscure in light of the clear That leads us, almost lastly, to the A in the road. So read it, observe it, and make an analysis. This is where you get your information together. And you say, okay, so now I learned what it says. Now I have to ask the question, what does it mean? This is where the process of hermeneutics comes in. Another big word, Herman who? If you said that, you're already doing hermeneutics. You're already saying, wait, what does that mean? Again, macchiato, you can do it. Exegesis says, what does it say, doing the hard work? Hermeneutics says, what does it mean? What does it mean then, and how does it convey today? One author uh, that I pointed to the book it says, hermeneutics is the art and science of conveying in one language what is conveyed in another language. To put it a little bit easier, what another author says, if exegesis, observation, is the then and there, then hermeneutics, analysis or interpretation, is the here and now. What was it then and there that translates to the here and now? And the reason, here's, now we, most of us, when we read the Bible, we start with the here and now. What does it mean here and now? But we can't come to a proper interpretation of the here and now until we understand the then and there. And that's where if the political figure had done his exegesis, he would understand that Numbers or or Leviticus is not promoting slavery. And poor interpretation has promulgated slavery. Disgusting in the sight of God. But it was also as a result of good interpretation that perpetuated, that brought about the the anti-slavery and abolition of slavery through men like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King. Through good interpretation. You see how dangerous it can be if we don't interpret rightly? Nor was uh, Deuteronomy promoting the killing of children. The background of that ch- verse talks about, you know, uh, 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 it's essentially um, capital punishment. It's a person that's completely of age. And nor does the Sermon on the Mount ever uh, uh, turn a cheek against injustice like um, I can't think of the word. Um, you know, we're, we're fighting it right now across the sea. Um, whatever. Um, <laughs> what? Terrorism. Terrorism. <laughs> Man. B-Money has all the answers. Give it up for B-Money. <laughs> Hermeneutics moves the interpretation from subjectivity to objectivity. What I think it means for me to, here's what was intended by the author. One author says, quote, 
we're convinced that the Mormons baptizing for the dead on the basis of 1 Corinthians 15, 29, or the Jehovah's Witness rejection of the deity of Christ, or the snake handlers of Mark 16, 18, I don't know if that really ever caught on, or the the prosperity evangelist advocating of the American dream as the Christian right on the basis of 3 John 2, are all improper interpretations. In each case, the error in their hermeneutics, precisely because their hermeneutics is not controlled by good exegesis. Jesus. They started with the here and now and have read it into text meaning that they were not originally intended for. We do the same thing today. We do it with peripheral issues. Um, you know, was, did Jesus drink grape juice when Welch's grape juice actually didn't come out till 1800s? Did, did uh, are tattoos uh, uh, still unpermitted? They are. We, it's a good... <laughs> It works good for parents, but it doesn't really good work for exegesis. Um, because if you take that route, you have to also say, well, we're not allowed to wear clothing. Are we still allowed to wear clothing with, with, that has two seams or not? What did it mean to the original audience? What were they trying to get across? Now, we also have to ask, as we're asking that question, what is the timeless truth that's being taught in this passage? Now, it might mean something different for them there than it means for me now, but what is the timeless truth that is being taught that I am called to obey? And as we look at that, that's where we come to the D in road, the do it. Gordon Fee says, I'm convinced that the single most serious problem that we have with the Bible is not our lack of understanding, but with the fact that we understand most things far too well. For example, with such texts as do everything without grumbling or arguing, the problem is not understanding it, but in obeying it, putting it into practice. I mean, do you really have to understand the culture better to say, or when you hear the, the passage, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Ah, I think I need a better interpretation of that, actually. <laughs> no, the problem is that I don't do it. And this is an application. And if we fail to apply Scripture, what ends up happening? It's sadly what ends up happening that causes people to despise religious people as a whole. You either become puffed up or more judgmental with knowledge. Because now you can say, the Bible says, yeah, but do you do that? I remember one preacher saying, you only do the things that, you only believe the things that you actually do. Like if if I believed it, it's gonna cause me to wanna do it. So why don't we put things into practice? Or put it positively, how do we apply scripture? How do we do it? First, we have to ask how the scripture was applied to the hearers in the original situation. When Paul said, don't grumble and complain, yeah, of course, there's a historical situation that's there. They're going through persecution and incredible times of, of difficulty. So because they're going through that, I can... God is calling me to do that in my times of difficulty. He's calling you to, do, to not grumble and complain currently, right now, in your times of difficulty. For example, there's one popular boxer who, who used to have on his uh, boxing shorts, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you can be a, the best athlete that you can possibly be because Christ is the one who gives you strength. For some of us, he just hasn't fit us to that. If you have a five foot three inch son and he's saying, I know I can be in the NBA, I can make it to the NBA. You're like, son, you're 23 and you're five three. <laughs> but I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nah, exegesis. <laughs> we also have to ask, not only what did it say then, but what does it mean to me in my current situation? What does it mean now? That's where we can start to do two things. Two things in terms of application. 
is there something that I am called to rejoice in? Christ's work, his redemptive work. And is there something that I'm called to repent of? In order to uncover idols in my own heart, why don't I obey this, obey this command? Why, Lord, don't I obey the command not to complain? Why do I see it possible, always necessary to complain? What are the obstacles that are getting in my way? And that I overreact as a result. Why do I get angry? Why am I dealing with jealousy in here? You can ask, why should I obey this command? What is there that I'm called to rejoice in? Christ's redemptive work. And then what does Christ's redemptive work call me to repent of in this passage? According to what it meant to them and what it means to me now. Now, we all know that we've looked at Scripture and says, what does it mean? How can I apply it? That's ultimately where we want to go. We want to apply it. But yet for me just to stand up here and say, stop complaining. On the one hand, that might be enough to stir you up and say, okay, I better shape up and get my act together. But that's not going to last. Or on the one hand, you could say, shut up. What do you know about my life? So that's where we come to the final destination of the road. The road is difficult. But the destination of it makes it worth it. The destination is to take us to Christ always. And as we look at Scripture, what does it say here for this man? He obeyed. He got baptized. He said, hey, tell me. Here's some water. Let's go get baptized. But ultimately, it says, verse 35, 34. The eunuch asks, tell me, was this prophet talking about himself or someone else? Verse 35. So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And what did that do? He said, look, there's some water. I want to be baptized. I want to do. I want to do. I want to apply. He started with the same scripture and said, it's all pointing to Jesus. He's the one that was cut off so that you don't have to be cut off from God. Pardon the pun. And as a result, what we realize is to get to Jesus, we have to first, as we said last week, I want to summarize, find the need. Now, maybe that wasn't entirely clear. What do I mean by find the need? In every passage, what we're tempted to do as we look for Jesus is say, wow, this is a weird passage. Moses' wife is circumcising her son and throwing the knife and the circumcision at his feet. Where's Jesus in that? Or to say, um, wow, the Levite chopping up his wife <laughs> and sending it to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then that caused them to go to war. Where's Jesus in that one? There's a lot of scripture that are, that's obscure to us. And it would be eisegesis to say, okay, here's Jesus in that. Find the need or the fallen condition or the jacked upness of humanity in that passage. Scripture doesn't only point us to the redemption quality, it points us to the need of redemption. And so when you read those stories, they're there to show you a narrative of the wickedness of the human heart as a result of the fall, which is a part of the five-act play. Find the need. How do we do that? Sometimes it's good to compare and contrast. Okay, this is, what, this is, this is who Abraham was and how he, how he fell, but Jesus was better and greater than. Remember, we read that last week. But Jesus was the better and greater king I'm comparing and contrasting the fallenness of the humans in the story to the beauty of the king to come. That takes me back to Christ. That encourages me to obey in a way that doesn't go away. And lastly, not just find the need, but remember, follow the thread. That's what he does here in verse 36. It says, beginning at the scripture, he told them the good news about Christ. The gospel is good news. It's something that you just 
receive and say, yeah, Jesus has changed it all. He was cut off for me. He's the king that I could never find in this passage. He's the, the one, because this man was outcast, Jesus was outcast outside of the gate. He was crucified outside of the public square. And this man who's cast out because of his culture or his heritage or ethnicity can say, Jesus was cast out for me so that I never have to be cast away from the presence and love of God. And you see how that causes us to obey when we compare Christ and say he's the better than. When I look at tomorrow or next, this next week in your one-year Bible reading, which is a tool to get you reading frequently and thoroughly, as you read about Moses, you read about a great leader, a great prophet, but he fails. He's got feet of clay. And as you read about him, you say, oh, this wasn't speaking that Moses was to be their savior and the ultimate redeemer. The lamb's blood wasn't a picture just to save them from the angel of death. All of it was to show me that Jesus is the greatest prophet. He's the greatest priest. He's the ultimate king. He's the sacrifice that takes away all of my guilt and shame. And he's the one that can allow me to face suffering with him with me. The road to understanding scripture can be difficult. It requires work. But the destination is worth it. And to meet you at that destination is always Christ. That's why we have a time of communion. That's why we come up and we take bread and, and the elements, the juice, in symbolism that Jesus is the destination. When you read this story, it's all pointing to the destination. He's the goal. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and we thank you that you meet us. You're the end goal, Jesus. And we ask now that you'd show us where we should rejoice in you. And we also come in repentance and humility, Lord. We don't want to just agree that this is the word of God. We want to live underneath its authority. And to do so, Lord, we come and we repent. We turn our face to you and our back on sin and we say, Jesus, you're the end goal. I repent of making other things the end. I encourage you to come forward in our time of worship. There's a prayer team on both sides of me. They would love to pray with you or come forward, get on your face, your knees, you stand however you want to and come to Jesus and repent of those things that you've made ultimate, the destination other than him. He'll restore you, give you cause for rejoicing like this man in the story.